All right, so doctrine of last things. This is our second study in this. In our previous discussion on last things, we, we, we looked at some of the different views of theological belief. We talked about amillennialism. We talked about postmillennialism. We talked premillennialism. Um, we also opened up our study by uh, giving a lot of time to discuss um, this thing called consistent um, uh, uh, historical grammatical interpretation. If you weren't uh, part of that, I encourage you to go listen to at least the first part. This explains how Bible-believing Christians who love each other can arrive at different theological differences, and it has to do with the hermeneutic, at least as it pertains to the millennial kingdom. And so then we also made a comparison between um, uh, historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. And so in that discussion, we got a little bit into the rapture. Um, tonight will be a, a, a fuller discussion of that. Um, but tonight we're going to discuss the intermediate state. We're going to talk about the future biblical events, which includes... Um, the rapture, the millennium. It's going to talk about the tribulation. We're going to talk about the heaven. We're going to talk about resurrection of the saints. So let's go ahead and uh, move straight into our study and let's begin talking about the intermediate state. Now, as believers, we can rest in Jesus Christ, that he has provided us victory over death and assuring us of eternal life. Uh, Millard Erickson, he defines the intermediate state as the conditions of humans between their death and the resurrection. The intermediate state is the condition of humans between their death and the resurrection. You are not in the intermediate state yet. You're alive. Okay, so between death and the resurrection, you also are not resurrected. So that is the intermediate state. And when we talk about the resurrection here, we're talking about the resurrection of the body. We'll make that very clear. Let me read to you a quote and actually got it up there. It's by Norm Geisler. He says, the Bible teaches that between the death and the resurrection, the human soul spirit survives consciously apart from its body. This is neither a state of annihilation nor a state of unconscious sleep. This is an eternal state of conscious bliss for the saved and conscious anguish for the lost. So another view, another understanding here, or an expanded idea of the intermediate state, not another, an expanded statement on that. The believer will eventually be in the presence of the Lord, and that is what Christians believe. There are questions about death and, and, and afterlife, and so there are different opinions about this. Um, so are, the, are believers with the Lord now? Do they have bodies now? Where are the unbelievers? These are some of the questions that we are going to talk about. So let's talk about this temporary state that um, believers are in before receiving the resurrection of their bodies. So when a person experiences physical death, um, their, their soul, their spirit remains. They are consciously aware. And that would be for the believer or the unbeliever. And so that immaterial aspect of their being is still functioning. Um, though their physical body is no longer functioning. This is why we... We, we, you know, we have the burials of, of bodies and, and so forth. And there's a clear example of this found in Luke chapter 16, uh, verses 19 and, and, and going on. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And, um, of course, we know that the rich man is in anguish. And we know that Lazarus is in a place of comfort. He's in Abraham's bosom, as it's called. That's that conscious state of continual bliss that we just read about. And in that account there in Luke 16... Um, we see these two distinctions. Now, some say, well, this is not, this was a, not a real situation. Well, there's no indication that it was not real. But um, I think that even if this was not a real situation, I don't think Jesus would mislead us in a parable about what that state is like. So whatever option you go, this is meant for our instruction and for our teaching. 
There are other examples of people um, having an awareness um, in death. Uh, Luke 23, 43, Jesus uh, made a promise to uh, the man who was on the cross with him. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. So he didn't say, today you're going to go into soul sleep. He said, you're going to be with me. So quite a promise there that is given. Those who argue that the New Testament refers to believers sleeping will usually um, use the idea of a believer falling asleep as proof. But that, that really is a failure to understand the euphemism that is being used for a cessation of physical life. So today, believers who die are in the presence of the Lord. Do you have a loved one in the faith who has passed from this life? Well, they are conscious and they are in the presence of the Lord and they are awaiting their physical bodies. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, We are confident, yes, well, please, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So when, you, when you, your body stops working on planet Earth, you are in the presence of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 17 kind of gives us a little timing here. And it says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. There's that euphemism that's just talking about those who have died physically. Why use that? Because for the believer, when they die, they go to the presence of the Lord, and that's rest. That's beauty. That's wonderful. I mean, how many of us have just loved to throw our heads on the pillow at the end of the day? And so um, that's why this is adopted. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So um, there are those who have died, they're awaiting their bodies but they are conscious and aware and they are in the presence of the Lord. They will receive their bodies as we will, or whatever generation is alive at the time of this rapture, they also will be transformed. So they will receive their bodies first, will be a close second. As I, I, I keep saying we, I'm hoping it's in our generation. Can I get an amen? amen. All right, thank you. All right. I hope that you know we get to see that happen. We get this amazing translation that is going to take place. So, um, no, those who have died are not unconscious and unaware and just awaiting. There is, we don't believe the Bible teaches soul sleep at all. So, let's talk a little bit about heaven. And there's so much that can be um, said about this, but it's going to be brief. Uh, believers who die physically are in paradise with the Lord and they are waiting their glorified bodies. J.I. Packer says um, of this, this place, heaven, uh, a gain for believers because after death they are closer to Christ. When we die, we go and we are in the presence of the Lord. Now, this is a temporary state that awaits the resurrection of the body. So this is where I would say Old Testament saints and um, believers who have died in faith are at this point. Um, the event is going to be the rapture of the church, and that is when they're going to receive their bodies. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. Um, just read it, but there it is again, uh, just to reinforce it. And I think it should be noted that many who hold to a different rapture timing so I would hold to the view, we at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg, we hold to the view that the rapture happens, this event of when believers are going to get their new bodies, um, that this happens before the great tribulation. It's called a pre-tribulation rapture. We'll talk more about it in just a moment. Others see that as an event that happens um, that's more synonymous with the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. So... Bible-believing Christians are going to have a different time in which they will see that take place. Um, and so that passage that refers to that is in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. And I'll read to you, and you might want to just put a finger in Revelation 20, because I'm going to reference this a lot tonight. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus 
and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So, again, those who would not hold to a pre-trib rapture um, most likely would identify um, those uh, bodies, new glorified bodies coming um, at the end of the great uh, tribulation. And, yeah, and I, I can just keep on talking and talking. I just better be careful. But they argue and they say, well, if that's the first resurrection and you're saying that there is a resurrection that happens as a pre-tribulation rapture seven years earlier, then how many first resurrections are there? That's a great point. But I think what's important to know is that that is not the only reference to resurrection. I can think of, if I'm correct, and you know, the evaluation that the pre-tribulation rapture is true, that will be a resurrection for believers. Then you have tribulation saints in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. Very specific, those who are beheaded, those who had not taken the mark of the beast. It really describes who they are. So that would be another element of the first resurrection. But then you can back up, and there's, there's, there's one that even preceded the rapture. Um, and um, that's talked about, and I am getting ahead of myself, but that is talked about um, that there were, after the resurrection of Jesus, there are saints that were seen walking in the holy city. And then, of course, Jesus was the first fruits. So rather than seeing the first resurrection as an hour, it's more of a period of time from the resurrection of Jesus Christ until the resurrection of those tribulation saints. So that, that's how that would be explained. So until this eternal state is inaugurated, believers from both the Old Testament and New Testament are in paradise with the Lord, and they're enjoying sweet, sweet fellowship. 2 Corinthians 5.8, already read it to you, but to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, that's heaven, and that's where believers are now. What about hell? In the Old Testament, uh, uh, Mounts writes and says that Sheol is the place of the dead for all people, both righteous and unrighteous. So when the Old Testament talks about um, death, it uses the word Sheol, and it's just it's the idea of a grave. As you move into the New Testament, there are two Greek words f- that we should be familiar with. One is Hades, and the other is Gehenna. I'm sure if you read through the Gospels, you've heard these words before. Hades is is a word that speaks of the abode and the afterlife, and it's used a lot like the word Sheol. Um, Gehenna is a term that's used to speak of punishment. Sheol, grave. Um, Hades, grave. Uh, Gehenna, place of punishment. So just to kind of help frame these things up in our mind. So while the believer is being held in that intermediate state presently, um, there's coming a time when those that are not believers will be resurrected and um, from that, from Gehenna um, and that place of torment or, yeah, you know, actually probably from uh, Sheol or Hades, and then they will be resurrected and they will go into the lake of fire, Gehenna, a place of punishment. We read it already, but again, Revelation 20, verses 5 through 6. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who is part of the first resurrection. Over such the second death, that would be unbelievers. Unbelievers is the second death. Has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him. Um, A thousand years. So that's when that resurrection is going to happen. All unbelieving individuals from, um, I guess we'll say from Cain, all the way to the present and through the tribulation, they will be resurrected from that place of suffering um, and they will be thrown into the lake of fire. So this is what the Bible discusses. Now, some will have a problem with this and they'll say, I just can't accept the idea that there will be an eternal torment and that is a much larger discussion but what I would just simply want to say to this is 1 Peter 3.9. Um, and that's the wrong reference. 
Oh, man. I've done this a few times, and I apologize, but uh, I really have um, tried to do this. But it's, it's, God is not willing that any should perish. You know, we talk about the long-suffering of God. And, you know, why is God long-suffering? Why hasn't he come back? Because he is not willing that any should perish. God's heart is not to send anybody into this lake of fire, to see anybody end up in Gehenna. And so he has tarried. People that end up in the lake of fire and those that are in that place of torment, Gehenna right now, are there because they have died without receiving the grace of the Lord. They've refused that. And so it's not God's will that that should be the case. This is why he sent his son. So we should never conceive of God as being glad for the day when he throws man into the lake of fire. Look at the price that he's paid to make certain that wouldn't happen. So that's a little bit about heaven. That's a little bit about hell. Um, much larger topic can be discussed on, on um, just the, the teaching that, you know, God's going to wipe out, um, you know, people and they'll be annihilated. They'll be destroyed. They'll have no consciousness and they will go through the great white throne judgment, but then they will just be obliterated and they have no more soul, no more spirit. There, there's a lot of problems with that. Um, namely that the Bible talks about um, some being raised to everlasting life and some to, raised to everlasting destruction in the same verse. So if everlasting means eternal for the righteous, then why do we think everlasting, same Greek word, would mean something different for the unrighteous? Um, and so, again, we're created in the image of God. And we're eternal beings. And that is not going to be destroyed. That will continue on. So it is a... It is a sobering thought to consider hell. It is difficult. But this would be my warning to you. Don't ever think for a second that you are more just, more loving, more merciful, or more kind than God. And if you're like, well, I just can't understand it. Okay. There's a lot of things you don't understand. You wake up some mornings and you can't understand why you're feeling so lousy. But you know that you are. Because you, you have that. So when we begin to discuss things that are revealed in Scripture, just because they don't seem to make sense to us, there's no reason to jettison those doctrines. Well, let's talk about future biblical events. And so we're going to talk about, not exhaustive, but we're going to talk about the rapture of the church, the tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the millennium, and a little bit more about the resurrection of the dead if we have time. But we did cover it pretty well. So let's move into talking about the rapture of the church. Um, this is a teaching um, that the word rapturo uh, in Latin comes from uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. How many of you have ever heard this say, you know, the teaching of the rapture is not a legitimate teaching um, because the word rapture is not even in the Bible? Has anybody ever heard that before? Okay, so this is what, I'm not really trying to be combative, but this is what arrogant Americans think when they think that it's only the English Bible that exists on planet Earth. There are many translations. And so um, the Latin Vulgate translates 1 Thessalonians 4.17. It's up there. And it uses the Latin word rapturo. So it is in the Bible. Just not the English Bible. But the word rapturo in the Latin Vulgate is not the Greek word. The Greek word, um, and, it's, and we're looking specifically in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, it says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. That means to be violently snatched upward, right? Um, and we'll meet uh, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we shall always be with the Lord. The Greek word here is harpazo. That's the Greek word. Um, so Latin, rapturo, transliterated as a theological word into English, rapture. But the Greek word is harpazo, and it means caught up, just as it is translated. The rapture is the event where believers are caught up into the presence of the Lord. All believers, I don't care what your theological view is of when the rapture happens. This is just what believers believe. And you just put it at, at, at either seven, at the, before the seven years, or in the middle, or at the end. So um, there are three main views, which we've talked about before. So the first view is uh, post-tribulationalism, which is to say um, 
This view sees a rapture as a simultaneous event, and that might, maybe not everybody would agree with that who holds that position, but it's a, it's a, it's one, two, I mean, kind of like rapture, second coming. Um, so they would probably make a theological distinction, but it happens at the relatively the same time. And a passage that they would use to say this happens at this point in time um, is Matthew 24, verses 27 through 31. There's um, Revelation 19 as well, but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to use this one here, and, I, and I'm going to read to you. It says, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of, will the coming of the Son of Man be. I mean, nobody's going to miss it. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, so we're getting a timing, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then, timing, right, a timing word, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I mean, this is visible. Nobody's going to miss it. Everybody's going to see it. And he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. And so they will look here at verse 13 and say, look, I mean, it's, it's so clear. I mean, the rapture is going to happen. He's going to gather them from, these, uh, four uh, from the four winds. And this is a clear statement, timing-wise, that it's happening at the end of the tribulation. And I would, I would absolutely agree with that position and be post-tribulational if that last statement, his, it will gather the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other is the church. So the question and the point of distinction is, is this the church or is this Israel? And, and so how you answer that is quite significant. And so looking at verse 31, if we could put that verse up there, Matthew, yeah, you got it already. Thank you, you guys are ahead of me. And I appreciate that. It says, um, he will gather the elect from the four winds. So Jesus is referring to the same prophetic event here in Matthew 24 that gathers scattered Israel in Isaiah 11, 11 through 12 prior to the establishing the kingdom of God upon the earth. So I, what we have here at the end of Matthew 24, verse 31, is an Old Testament reference. So let's go to the Old Testament reference. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 11 through 12. And it says, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time, to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. That's pretty much all over the place, right? He will set up a banner for the nations and he will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So when, what I believe we're reading here in Matthew 24, 31 is a reference to what Isaiah the prophet said would happen when they would be gathered together. So if it's the church, then you've got to pretty much be a post-tribulationist. There's no question. But is, my, my challenge here is, um, I don't think that's what's being referred to, comparing Scripture to Scripture, it's... To me, it's pretty clear. And for all the other reasons that we've already talked about, that Israel and the church are distinct and that God has a plan for Israel in the end. A lot more could be said. But maybe that's enough for you to dig in and understand how um, that becomes a point of confusion. Uh, the, the second view is the mid-tribulation view, and it teaches that the rapture will take place in the middle of the seven-year tribulation, so halfway in. Um, and this view identifies the last trump of 1 Corinthians 15.52 with the last trumpet blast in Revelation 11.15. So let's read 1 Corinthians 15.52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. And he's talking about the rapture. So mid-tribulation says it's the middle because Revelation 11.15 says, then the seventh angel 
sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So they say, well, the seventh sounding here is of the trumpet. So we I link that up with 1 Corinthians 15, 52, Revelation 11, 15, it's happening in the middle of the tribulation. Therefore, it is a mid-tribulation rapture. But um, I, I really don't believe that these are synonymous trumpets. Every time there's a trumpet, it does not mean that it is the same sound. Uh, it's announcing the same event. And so let me read to you um, what Charles Ryrie has to say on this. It says, this is somewhat a simplistic argument that assumes that all blowing of trumpets must indicate the same kind of event. This is not true. In Jewish apocalyptic literature, trumpets signaled a variety of great eschatological events, including judgments, the gathering of the elect, and resurrection. The seventh trumpet is a trumpet of judgment. Go read the context of Revelation 11 on your own. Whereas the trumpet in 1 Corinthians is one of resurrection and deliverance. So let your context help you determine whether or not it's the same event. Um, so that they indicate the same event is a gratuitous assumption, Charles Riley states. And I would agree with him. Um, so while this view seeks to keep the church, mid-trib tries to keep the church from um, the worst part of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation, it still has the church in the tribulation. And to come to the conclusion that the first half of the tribulation is not bad, that is just not, um, that is not what you read. Um, actually, what you read is at the beginning of, the, uh, of tribulation, uh, Revelation chapter 6, they say, the people of the earth say, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. That's Revelation chapter 6. So how do they get around that? And they say, well, this is not chronological, and so then they have to go into a, a kind of a, an explanation of that. So not my view. The third view believes that the church will be caught up, harpazo, to meet the Lord prior to the great tribulation. This is the view that I have. Why do I have this view? Well, I'll give you a couple of reasons. One, the church and Israel are distinct entities, and the great tribulation is a time when Israel will experience the persecution of the Antichrist as spoken by Daniel the prophet, Jesus, and John. You never find a, a statement of the church, the church, specifically the word church, being in the Great Tribulation. I challenge you to find the word church after Revelation chapter 3. You can't find it. Now, you may say there's allusions to believers and the elect, and that is... But you will not find the word church. Church is not the only believers. There are those that were believers before the church. And I would argue there are believers after the church. And you can read of them as saints and elect inside the book of Revelation. But Daniel 7.25 um, speaks of Israel's trouble. He says... Um, he shall speak pompous words, this is the Antichrist, against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law, which certainly applies to Israel. The saints shall be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years. Matthew 24, verses 15 through 22. I read it last week. I encourage you to just take the time, write, jot the reference down. But Jesus is talking about the abomination of desolation. And he says that the, this uh, Antichrist is going to stand in the holy place. He's going to declare himself to be God. That those who are in Judea should flee. Pray that it's not on Sabbath. These are all words that are indicating um, both geography and, and an ethnic identity of Israel. Revelation 12, 1 through 6. I will read these because you begged me. Uh, Revelation 12, 1 through 6. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Read Joseph's dream that made his brothers and mom and dad so upset in the book of Genesis. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain gave birth. 
And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars in heaven and threw them to the earth. So this is Satan. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. We're talking about Jesus. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations. That's clear. With a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. So he did ascend after the resurrection. Then the woman fled into the wilderness. This is still the woman Israel. Where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her for 1,260 days. Or time, times, and half a time. Or three and a half years. Or 42 months. These are all ways in which the prophets describe that time. um, But it's all three and a half years. So I see them as distinct. It's, it's Israel that's going to be in the tribulation. There's, this is, this is, these are the saints. That is the elect. I see this as a distinct work. Um, number two, God does not judge the righteous with the unrighteous. Genesis 18.25, as Abraham was told that God was about to go to Sodom and Gomorrah and judge that city and wipe it out, he had his... Uh, nephew Lot, wife, and then, um, you know, his children there. And so Abraham begins to speak to the Lord and says, you know, um, you know, would you judge the city if there are 50? And he works his way all the way down to 10. And the Lord says, if there was 10, I wouldn't judge it. So this is where I'm picking up in chapter 18, verse 25. It says, far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of the earth do right? Skipping forward into chapter 19, verse 22, the angels say to Lot, hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was Kozor. So while not the, the most compelling argument, I do believe we see a pattern in scripture is that God does not judge the righteous with the unrighteous. And so um, this kind of leads us into my third point. Um, and that is that in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, we are told that we are not appointed to wrath. That the church is not appointed to wrath. And so he says, that, actually, you know, I don't have that there. But let's, let's all turn over there. 1 first, first Thessalonians 5. I'll pick up reading at verse 1 just to get the flow and the context. But concerning the times and the seasons, which for you students, go and do a word study, go, go search the phrase times and seasons. Whenever the times and seasons is used, it is always a technical term for the, um, the judgment and the thousand year reign. Brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord. Okay, this time of judgment. So comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. They shall not escape. They shall not escape. But you, contrast, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day, which day? The, the, the day of the Lord should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Here it is. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we shall live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. So they thought they were in the day of the Lord. He said, you're not in the day of the Lord. That's not going to happen because you're not appointed to wrath. So this is an important verse, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. Uh, the Lord promises, and here's the, the typo I have in my notes. I have the word, I uh, have Israel rather than the church. So if you're reading my notes, I got the typo. I'm gonna, I've already fixed it. It's just probably not up there yet. The Lord promises to keep the church from the specific trouble of the great tribulation. Um, we read that in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, but here's another reference. Revelation 
Jesus says, because you've kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. He says he's going to keep them from the hour. And actually, it's, I'm going to keep you out. It's the, it's the Greek word preposition ek, which means out. However, it is possible for this to be translated as through from just a, a purely uh, definition meaning of the preposition ek. But context matters. Context always determines the meaning of the word. As a matter of fact, um, you can hear somebody say something and use the wrong word, and you will automatically fix it, won't you? I mean, sometimes we need, we need to get clarification. But, you know, maybe somebody says something and it's so clear that that's not what they mean. You just, context of conversation, you're fixing their words as you go through that discussion. And so my point here is context is a powerful tool. Um, definitions matter, no doubt about it. But definitions are going to fall within context. So you got to look at the context. So debate exists as whether or not keep you from should be interpreted as a removal from the tribulation or a preservation through, like God preserved Israel through the ten plagues, that kind of an event. It is clear, though, that if John was going to write to teach the church that they would not go through the great tribulation, but they would be taken out of the great tribulation, these are the exact words he would use. There is another way in which it could be stated that it will keep you through the uh, great tribulation. He could have used the, um, uh, the Greek preposition apple. And uh, not apple, apo, A-P-O. Um, sounded like it said apple, but it's not that. So he, there's another way in which that could have been stated, and it could have been even clearer. Um, but I will have to say that it can be interpreted as um, post-tribulationists would argue. However, let me read to you again from Norm Geisler, and he, he goes quite further than I have made in my statements, but I agree with him. He says, in context, this statement about being saved out of, the Greek word ek, preposition, the time of trial does not mean saved from it, not through it, one cannot be saved from an entire hour by being any part of it. And I love that last line. One cannot be saved from an entire hour by being in any part of it. And I think sometimes the argument goes down to um, suffering and trouble and difficulty. But although the great tribulation is that, the promise is I will keep you from the hour. The hour is, a, is a referring to the great tribulation, a seven-year period of time. So although you could argue, well, the Lord will keep them through it, <clears throat> the promise is not, I will keep you through persecution. He says, I'll keep you from the hour itself. And it is for that reason that I think the context weighs heavy in, in favor of that pre-tribulation view. Um, if... It is to be interpreted, preserved through the great tribulation. How should we then understand that preservation? It's not my view, but if you were going to be preserved through that hour of trial, what would that look like? And I'll leave that for you to kind of define, but Revelation speaks of believers being overcome by the Antichrist. So is that in your mind, being kept from the hour of trial? Maybe you do. I would disagree. Revelation eleven seven says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Revelation 13, 7 says, it was granted to him, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. A lengthier verse our passage is Revelation 7, 19, 9 through 17. 
After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped. And we're going to watch this. We're going we're to be a part of this. Saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, pay attention, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know. So he said to him, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. Is that preservation? They shall hunger no more. Why hunger? Because a lot of times they say, well, they'll be preserved from, you know, uh, uh, you know certain harms and difficulties. Well, wait a minute. Famine's going to be on the, in the world. As, when you read Revelation, only one-third of mankind left on planet Earth survives. These that have come out of the Great Tribulation have suffered hunger. They've suffered thirst. And even a direct judgment of God, the sun shall not strike them nor any heat. These are the direct judgments of God. This is not the ricochet, ricochet judgments of the Antichrist or a crazy world. Those are the direct cataclysmic uh, judgments that God's pouring out upon the earth. How can the church experience that when it says you have not been appointed to wrath? Hopefully you see the point. One more point. Um, there is a group of people, though, that are talked about that will have no harm come to them. Who are they? Are they the ones that, as some would argue, are the Revelation 3.10 that they are saved and preserved through? Well, I mean, Revelation 7 tells us that that's not the case. How about Revelation um, 7 verses 1 through 4? So go backing up a little bit earlier. It says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth. And the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east and having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. You're like, aha, there it is, the preservation. But wait a minute. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of who? The children of Israel were sealed. So there is a group that will be preserved through. And it's 144,000. God doesn't allow an angel to go and do his work. Of bringing judgment upon the earth during the great tribulation. Until those are sealed. But we read later on that there are believers. That experience the cataclysmic events of God's judgment upon them. I just don't see how you can come away saying. That is an escaping of God's wrath. I could be wrong. Additionally, number four, why do I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture? I talked about it last week, so my comments will be brief here. I believe the Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ for his church. What is that? Well, you can look up imminent in your little glossary there if you want to. But it's ready to take place in an impending event. And the event that is impending and ready to take place is that Jesus is coming back for the church and the church should be ready. Philippians 4, 5 says, Let your gentleness be known to all. The Lord is at hand. That's imminent. Titus 2, 13, Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. If you believe in the post-tribulation rapture, you've got, you're going to see a lot of other things take place. Before you see that. But for the pre-trib rapture, we should be looking because there is, that can happen at any moment. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. There's that anticipation. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. James 5, 7 through 9. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. 
You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You get the idea. Revelation 3.11, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. So you may take a different view on the doctrine of imminency, but I do believe that Jesus can return tonight. If I'm mid-trib or post-trib, I cannot hold that position. The position would be that there must be the bulls and the judgments. There must be the abomination of desolation and many other events. And then those things, depending on your view, would take place. So let me talk a little bit about this. And I'm, I'm just curious. How many of you, of you have ever heard something like this before? Um, the teaching of the pre-tribulation rapture is a, a new doctrine to the church, and there's no evidence of this taught by the early church fathers. How many of you have ever heard something like that? Okay. Well, that is a pretty common statement. I, for me, I think this is a... <laughs> of all the things that could be said, this seems like such an unreasonable way to try and argue against the pre-tribulation rapture because we don't determine doctrine by church history. We determine doctrine, as the Reformation said, what? Sola Scripture, only Scripture. So we, we go to Scripture. If you notice, we just went to a lot of Scripture to establish this position, be that as it may. Um, there are those who will make this argument and they will say this is a new uh, Johnny-come-lately doctrine and therefore there's no evidence of this church fathers and so don't pay attention to it. Again, Geisler um, writes of the importance of trusting in what the first apostles said as they wrote scripture. He says, for an evangelical, the primary question is not whether the doctrine was taught by the early church, but whether it was taught by the earliest church, the Church of the Apostles. As we have thoroughly established, there is ample New Testament evidence for, to support pre-tribulationalism. Just went through the scriptures. So it's not that there's no evidence. It's that we disagree. Um, I'm not arguing for, as you notice, that we may make reference. We just did 10, 11 studies on theology. And although we maybe quoted some of them along the way, not once did I ever, for any point of doctrine, hang our doctrine upon an early church father. If you doubt me, go listen again. You'll find that that is exactly the case. So I would say, well, the doctrine of eminence is clearly found both in the New Testament scriptures. But to answer the argument, the doctrine of eminence, which I believe is such a key piece to the pre-tribulation rapture, it is found among the early church fathers. And so, I, um, again, uh, Norman Geisler in his Systematic Theology, volume Last Things, provides a whole host of data to address this issue. So please indulge me um, so that you can just hear that these things are mentioned. Is it a clear statement? No, it's not a clear statement. But can you see the seeds of this doctrine there? Yes, you can. Just as you can see the seeds of doctrine in the early church that was later fully concluded later. So, early second century, the shepherd of Hermas. Go therefore and tell the elect of the Lord his mighty deeds. And say to them that this beast is a type of the great tribulation that is coming. If then you prepare yourselves and repent with all your heart and turn to the Lord, it will be possible for you to escape it. So, I mean, is it a full statement? No, it's not. But to say that the early church fathers didn't have anything to say about it is not accurate. Same point five more times. Irenaeus uh, from, lived from 125 to 202. And he says, when and the end of the church shall be suddenly caught up from this, it is said, there shall be tribulation such as not been since the beginning, neither shall be. For this is the last contest of the righteous in which when they overcome, they are crowned with incorruption. So again, 
he speaks of an order there, being caught up, and he says, and it, there shall be great tribulation. So he's, he's putting the caught up before the great tribulation, not at the end of it. And people say, well, yeah, but he also said things in a different order. Yeah, okay. So early church fathers were hammering out their theology. We don't ha they didn't have, you know, 2,000 years of church history. And so you can find, not just on this point, but on almost any major doctrinal point, you can find some confusion in their writings. Not so early, but George Whitfield, 1740 to 1770, said, perhaps today, perhaps this midnight, let that cry, behold, the bridegroom cometh. Be continually sounded in your ears and begin now to live as though you were assured that this night you were to go forth to meet him. He believes in imminence. John Wesley, 1703 to 1791, expect him every hour. Now he is nigh, even at the doors. Doctrine of imminence. How about Charles Spurgeon writing in the 1800s? The date of that coming is concealed when he shall come. No man can tell. Watch for him and be always ready that you may not be ashamed at his second advent. So again, he has this doctrine of imminence and then he's also talking about the second advent. Other quote from Spurgeon. The scripture has left the whole matter as far as I can see within intentional indistinctness that we may always be expecting Christ to come and that we may be watching for his coming at any hour and every hour. He may not come for a thousand years. He may come tonight. So again, you hear the clear understanding of the, some great men of God that had this teaching of eminence. Specifically to the question that there's no discussion, there's no teaching found anywhere in the early church that... Um, the church would be gone before the great tribulation. I, this is stated all the time. But I'm telling you, it's not true. I don't think people are trying to lie. I think that they're uninformed at the research and all the discovery that's been happening as people have been going through boxes of manuscripts from the early church. And they found these things. Now, with the, most of these names, I mean, there's a, there's a there's some stability behind them. There's, these are great men of God. And then there's one called Ephraim the Syrian. I don't think we want to go and pick up his theology book, okay? But to the idea that it wasn't discussed or talked about a pre-tribulation rapture, writing in 306, well, he lived from 306 to 373, he writes, We ought to understand thoroughly, therefore, my brothers, what is imminent or overhanging. Already there have been hunger and plagues, violent movements of nations and signs, which have been predicted by the Lord that they've already been fulfilled, and there is no other that remains except the advent of the wicked one in the completion of the Roman kingdom. All saints and the elect of the Lord are gathered together before the tribulation which is about to come and are taken to the Lord in order that they may not be seen at the time of the confusion which overwhelms the world because of our sins. That's a clear statement. You might have had some theological difficulties, um, but to say that it wasn't ever talked about is clearly not the case. Does this prove my point? No, it doesn't, but it definitely doesn't prove theirs. It does not prove their point that because these things were not found, they are found. So again, to me, of all the reasons why to go and argue this, if I was post-trip, mid-trip, I would never take that line of argument because I don't hang my theology upon some ancient church father. Although I can learn from them and grow from them, I, I go to Scripture so this is, this is the trouble. So I'm almost done with this section. Um, so I would say the truthfulness of a doctrine is not established by men in the church, in church history, but it's found in the word of God. And so while many are glad to point out that pre-tribulationalism was a late doctrine and that it um, had no information, they fail to inform you, which not all that would hold post-trib, but a good majority that hold to post-tribulationalism also hold to covenantalism. You can look up your glossary of terms. And um, 
I think it is accurate to say that covenantalists are all, all millennials. In other words, there's no millennium. Well, when did covenantalism come around? Oh, that didn't come around until the 1500s and the 1600s. Okay, they beat Darby by a couple hundred years. But really, you're going to sit here on the one hand and you're going to say that you can't believe in pre-tribulationalism because it came lately in the, you know, kind of later in the 1700s. But you're going to be a covenantalist and that didn't come around until the 15 or the 1600s. And you're not going to once raise that point of inconsistency. So this is why we don't go and, and try to establish doctrine on the church fathers. Learn from them, grow from them, appreciate the times they were in. So that's a lengthy discussion on uh, the pre-tribulation view. The tribulation view is mainly the pre-trib. But there you can see those are the reasons why we hold to it. Then we can talk about the tribulation period. It's one of the most documented periods of time in Scripture, probably next to the Gospels of Jesus' life. is found in Revelation 6 through 19. This period is referred to by writers in Scripture as Jacob's Trouble. And Daniel's 70th week. You can refer to Daniel 9 and Jeremiah 30 where you find those references. And there are several distinguishing aspects of this terrible time in human history. Jesus referred to this time of history in Matthew 24, 21 as a, a time unlike any other, nor ever shall be. It is unique, Matthew 24, 21. And in this period of time, a world leader is going to rise and it's going to plunge the world into war with the specific goal of annihilating Israel. We read it already. Revelation 12 verses 13 through 17 makes it so clear that he's attacking Israel. This Antichrist during the tribulation period will be a man that's going to speak blasphemous words. And he's going to seek to control all commerce. And he's going to uh, mandate a mark that you must keep in order to um, uh, buy or sell or trade. And this mark, please listen to this, this mark is synonymous with worship and allegiance to him. So <laughs> I remember when debit cards came out and people didn't want debit cards because that was the mark of the beast. Every one of you has, probably has a debit card, I would imagine. Somebody could say no, but most of you do. Um, you know, when they started scanning groceries at your store, I'm not going to do it. It's the mark of the beast. And, um, you know, and so people give all of these, you know, reasons. Um, I'm not going to take the, uh, the vaccination because that's the mark of the beast. You know, one thing you need for the mark of the beast, you know what you need? You need a beast. And we still don't have a beast on the scene. And nor is there ever been, hey, you can't buy, sell, trade, or, and when you do this, you are worshiping this guy and you're saying no to Jesus. None of that has ever happened. So what, what is the mark of the beast? We don't know. You know, yeah, there's going to be a 666. You can, you can read about that in Revelation 13, 16 through 18. But how is that going to be applied? I mean, we can come up with ideas. It's going to be a chip implant. Okay, maybe. Or maybe they're going to come up with new technology, and it won't be a chip implant. So don't hang your hats on any one thing. It will be revealed in that time. And so this is what's going to be going on during the Great Tribulation, persecuting, all kinds of cataclysmic events coming upon the earth, two-thirds of humanity dying. And then the Lord will return his second coming, and he will establish the millennial kingdom. And we read in Revelation 19, verses 17 through 21, about this time. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of the kings, captains, flesh of mighty men, flesh of horses, of those who sit on them and all the flesh of people free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That's the church, that's the saints, it's believers. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Second coming of Christ is going to be a war, and he's going to wipe out all the nations that have gathered together to destroy Israel and to 
war against him. Immediately following that is going to be the millennial kingdom. Again, we talked about this, I believe, in a literal millennial kingdom. A thousand-year reign of Christ after the tribulation. Um, and um, I'm just going to give you some references. Romans 11, 16 through 25. It speaks of how Israel will be grafted into the vine again. Zechariah 12, 10 says, I will pour on the house of David on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as, uh, as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for firstborn. So Israel is going to come to understand that Jesus was their Messiah whom they crucified. And they will then, Romans 10, 9 and 10, they will confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. And I encourage you to read chapter 10. You'll see this, chapter 10 is all about Israel. And as speaking of their confession, everyone must confess Jesus as Lord. Some say, well, Israel doesn't have to do that because they're his chosen people. That's, that would be what you call heresy. That is not true. They must believe in Jesus. So it is at the second coming of Christ, at the end of the tribulation, that the millennial reign of Christ will happen. Read Revelation chapter 20, um, where you will see this taking place. He's going to come back um, and... Uh, then he's going to cast uh, the false prophet and the Antichrist into uh, a bottomless pit. It says in Revelation 20 verses 1 through 3, for a thousand years. And then they'll be released. At the, uh, Satan will be released. He'll be bound as well for a thousand years. Then he will be released to go and deceive the nations. Again, Revelation 20 verses 7 through 10. We're almost finished here. We come to the resurrection of the dead. We've talked about this, but it is at this point in time, I guess, that I want to say. So you have the tribulation, you have the thousand-year reign, and then you're going to have the resurrection of the dead. Um, and so um, Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, speaks of the resurrection uh, that will happen to believing saints and uh, that have put their faith and trust in Jesus during the tribulation and were killed, they'll be raised to rule and reign for a thousand years. Uh, you see verse 4 of Revelation 20, but then there'll be another resurrection um, that's going to take place, um, which is a second resurrection unto death and judgment. So this is pretty much a, uh, a summary. There's a lot more. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to bring it to an end. I'm going to reel it in here. Um, because uh, a lot of this we already touched. But I just want to close it with, with this. Scripture is emphatic that a glorious change is coming for all who have put their faith and trust in God. We're either going to be caught up in the air or we're going to um, get a new body as those that are in the presence of the Lord. All, all believers, all Orthodox Bible-believing Christians agree on this. The timing of it we may disagree on. God is gracious and he is merciful. He's not wanting any to perish and so he is waiting and he is being patient. So we may not have unity of thought as to when the tribulation will happen or as to when the millennial kingdom will happen. And so we should not allow this to divide our fellowship or cause us to become ugly or mean or partisan. We should avoid the cheap shots. But I don't mean by that that you shouldn't have an opinion. <laughs> I don't mean by that that you shouldn't study the scripture and have a biblical answer for why you believe what you believe. And then we can come to that place where we either agree on these things or we disagree on them. But what all believers must believe is that Jesus is coming back and that we are going to be resurrected. You don't believe those two things, you're outside of Christianity. There's going to be a resurrection, and Jesus is going to come back. Well, why does Jesus have to come back? Because he said he was going to come back. And so, after this, um, there'll be a new creation of heaven and earth at the end of the thousand years. This present system is going to melt away, and the Lord is going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and all believers from all ages will live in this place with the Lord. So, I am so hoping that when the Lord um, melts this thing away and a new one is established that we get to see some aspect of this creation. Now I know he's been preparing this place, but I, I hope that maybe the, the heavens that melt away, 
that that we get to get that front row view to watch a recreation take place. I think that would be worth the price of admission right there. I don't know how it's going to work out exactly, but that's, that's, my, uh, that's my vote, and we'll see what the Lord does. But look up. Your redemption draws nigh. The Lord is coming back. He has saved you. He has redeemed you. He's not going to leave you here, and he's not going to leave you in the grave. You're going to be with him forever. So don't allow this present hour to have too much impact upon you. It's a light affliction compared to the glory that is coming for us. We're going to go ahead and close in prayer. Worship team, you can stay where you are. And um, why don't we stand together and we will close our time out. Father, we thank you that you have redeemed us. Lord, we thank you that you are preparing a place for us, that you will come again, that where we are, we may be with you also. And Lord, we can't wait for that day when we come. I pray, Lord, that we would be ready, that we would be looking and hastening the coming of your day, that we will be found ready, waiting, and watching. All these exhortations were given in Scripture. And Lord, I thank you that um, although this life may feel long at times and it is the only thing we've ever known or experienced, Lord, I pray you would give us faith to hear these Scriptures of the future and all that you have planned for us, and that our hearts would be filled with hope. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.